It's about slowing down. And, and there, I mean, you know, there is, there's a time and place for everything, isn't there? And this is about, you know, spending time with the family, getting some exercise um, and connecting with nature, learning a bit about heritage and history and learning about the gardens. Or it might be you're one of our members, you just come because you walk the dog here every day, you know that, but it, you want to do that in a really nice, safe environment because you know that in pain until everyone's had to come for a turnstile. So, you know, there's not going to be people you might sometimes find in a park, you know, that's open access who've just been, you know, whatever. Um, so I, you know, I think that's, that's the crucial thing that we offer and, and you know. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Matt, how many A's are in your fantastic today? Well, let's count. I am fantastic. I counted 17 A's. Oh, good. Nice. (laughs) I'm doing really well. Question for you. What do you think of if I were to say cultural tourism? What I think of when you say cultural tourism is the opportunity when you go and travel and you're touring around that you get to learn about the culture or the history or the heritage of a particular area, whether that's through visiting a location or going on a tour or listening to a story, you know, that kind of thing. What I think is really interesting about the attractions industry as a whole is when you think of destination tourism and theme parks and FECs, and then you look at the cultural side of tourism, there are so many elements that are similar, even if the product itself is distinctly different. And what's interesting is there's oftentimes kind of this this line in the sand between the two as far as differences in their mission, differences in the way that they operate, differences in Uh, what their goal is for their guests or visitors to take away from them when they leave. But so many of the the nuts and bolts and the building blocks of them are identical or at least very similar. Would you agree with that? 100%. In fact, you and I have had this conversation before where, you know, depending on if you're working at a theme or an amusement park or a cultural visitor attraction, you're going to call the people that visit you very different things, whether it's a patron or visitor or guest or, you know, do you quantify yourself as a theme park or you know do you even take the the word park out of it and say no we're an attraction or or not an attraction we're a museum so there's a lot of words that are thrown around i think a lot of times when and people get very attached to those um, i think at the end of the day we're we're here to either educate entertain thrill you know and we do it in very very different ways depending on the type of facility you're at um, So whether it's cultural, whether it's, you know, a a kind of a standard quote unquote theme park um, and we have different missions at the end of the day, you want people to be able to say, Hey, that was an enjoyable experience and I want to do it again, or I want to tell people about it. Mm -hmm. And and what I think is really interesting about this, and this leads into who our guest is today. Paul Griffiths is the director of Paints Hill, which is on the Southwest side of London in the UK. And the way that he describes Paines Hill, which is, which is a garden, it is uh, almost, a, almost an art museum in the style of a beautifully landscaped property. The way that he describes the elements of it, I interpret it in very similar ways as the way that theme parks are designed, but not in a way that there are rides and there are fried foods and there's you know music and shows and, and things like that. But in the way that you are creating a a location-based experience for your guests to be immersed in something. And in this case, with Paints Hill, it it is history, it is culture, it is heritage, and it is inspiration from a gentleman named Hamilton, who back in the 18th century was an explorer and a traveler. 
And many people who would explore and travel would come back with specific goods and merchandise and foods and things like that. And he came back with his memories and from his memories built this garden. And basically these, these follies, we're gonna talk about what follies are, which I think is so interesting. And it, it has a lot of theme park components of it while distinctly being not a theme park because it is a cultural historic heritage tourism, but I will use the word attraction at the end of that. Yeah, because I mean, anytime you want people to come to you, you need to attract them, which is the base of the word attraction, right? Exactly. So we want to attract people to Paines Hill or a Disney or Universal or Carowinds or wherever it is. What I think is really fascinating is you know, how Paul talks about the different follies and what it means to actually go to Paines Hill, because it's a very different experience than someone might think of as going to a Disney or a, a Carowinds or a Six Flags, because it's not about, you know, kind of speed and adrenaline. It's actually about slowing down. And uh, I love the fact that when he talks about the school groups coming, he says there's no screens, right? They're out there, they're building things, they're in nature. And I think there's, there's, so much education and inspiration you can get from those kind of experiences that we need to, to curate those a little bit more for, for the people in our world so that we can have those experiences and we can learn from those and again, be inspired. For sure. And, and the way that Paul covers all of that is so interesting. This is going to be a great interview. Uh, and I would say, let's uh, just get right to it. Let's do it. Paul Griffiths from Painsill. Thank you so much for joining the Attraction Pros podcast. How are you doing today, Paul? No, I'm great. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. We are so excited to chat with you today. Thank you again for contributing to the 200th episode. Really, really loved that submission. Uh, would love to learn more about you and Painsill today. So let's just kind of take it away. Tell us a little bit about Paul. Well, yeah, gosh. Well, I've, I've worked in the, 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 the tourism industry now for too many years it's 25 years or so so sort of straight out of uni and then into that industry so I've known nothing else to be honest with you guys so I I started with English Heritage which is the name England's uh, sort of key heritage body very similar to the National Trust which you know listeners might be aware of um, and I started with those in the sort of um, I got a job in the office after leaving uni um, you know making the tea and doing all those crucial jobs that need doing before before moving into visitor services very soon afterwards and from there sort of worked my way up through different areas of English heritage and ended up in a, the most fabulous job as uh, area manager for the London Historic Properties. So I had sort of 12 sites around London. So spent a lot of time rushing around the capital, which if, if you guys who have been to London is, is an amazing city. And, you know, I love that, love that a lot. Uh, before moving down to Portsmouth to the Mary Rose, where we were opening a brand new £35 million museum, um, which was just the most brilliant experience. So I got the job as head of operations down there, firstly to sort of set the team up and, the, the sort of visitor experience strategy for opening and recruiting the team and that side of things. And so had six amazing years where we attracted over, over 2 million visitors uh, in that time to the museum, uh, which, because it's a yeah, museum in the docks in Portsmouth was, was a huge number of people and, and, you know, considerably more than had ever come down there before. So, and then moved to um, Paints Hill Park, uh, which I know we'll talk a bit more about Paints Hill in a while, but Paints Hill, Landscape Garden. I moved here as, uh, to the, the sort of senior post director, and so the feeding just into a, a board of trustees um, in November 2018. So been here nearly three years now. So that's incredibly quick potted potted history. <laughs> so you said that uh, you said this is all you've ever done, right out of yeah. university. I, so why why this industry? Why tourism? Why heritage? Was it you know just go back to your upbringing? Were you a, a consumer? A, a guest? Are you I, you know, we just always immersed into, you know, the history of, of the UK. Why, why did you choose this industry? Oh, that's, a, that's a fabulous question. There's, there's a couple of really easy. So yes, going back to childhood, we were always on days out and visiting, you know, attractions, theme parks. They were in their infancy when I was younger, particularly in this country. Um, we were going on holiday to Florida when I was about 12, you know, most amazing experience of visiting those unbelievable theme parks. We're in the mid eighties now at this point. Um, but ended up really in this industry when I was at when I was at uni. We um, I was studying a, a leisure management course, um, and my my initial sort of uh, vision from that was to go into maybe more sports uh, side of things. I'd always been fascinated by you know, sport and loving playing football and cricket and you know sports like that. And the sad realization that dawned on me that I was never going to become a professional sportsman. And you know 
take the stage at Wembley Stadium or something, you know, playing for England. So, um, so I thought I'd go to the business side of it. But while I was there, I was so fortunate to have a, a month's work experience. You know, when you go out of uni and you have a time in a, you know, uh, an employer, which is saying that unis do so much more now than they did in my time. Um, and I spent at a place called Hever Castle, which was um, Anne Boleyn, who was one of Henry VIII's wives. It was her childhood home. Um, and it was just the most fascinating time I spent there. And um, this was after my first year at uni. And in second years uh, and onwards, you had to specialise in a subject. Um, and one of those specialisms you could do was heritage management. Um, and a lot of that was around, you know, the sort of opening of heritage attractions and, and the, the, the guest experience side of things. So after spending that amazing month there with their, and I spent it with their visitor experience manager, and he had just a unbelievably amazing job you know it was just you know, gorgeous sight meeting the public dealing with some minor issues you know touring around in different parts of the the attraction from the gift shop to the, the, the castle to you know putting on events so I came back and spoke to my my tutors and decided to specialize in heritage management so did that for the next two years and that's why I graduated with a degree in um and that was like, right, I need to get into this line of work. I've studied in it. I want to do heritage. And so I was lucky, extremely lucky to get a sort of very entry-level job and, you know, work in English Heritage's offices, which you know, wasn't the world's most exciting job, but it was an entry in. And from there, I was able to move up within EH and English Heritage, rather using abbreviations as bad as it, um, and then uh, and then move on from there. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a love of mine. I, you know, whenever I'm away from here, I'll be visiting places still and, you know, um, and although I've always worked in heritage, I've always looked to the other sectors of leisure and tourism. So, you know, I think one of the reasons I find your guys' podcast so fascinating is when you, you talk to people in the, the real sort of theme park world and stuff. And I'm always looking at those and saying, well, how can we learn from that? And, you know, places like Disney obviously achieve such great gold standards. And you can, you know, so many people have written books on it and podcasts on it and stuff that there's always stuff you can learn. So, yeah, and that, that's, that's how I got into that business. But I just, love love the customer service element in fact when i was at school i remember about 12 or so 13 they i don't know if you have this in the us but you have careers advisors in england that would come in and sit down and type things into a computer and then there's, there's a long sheet would come out I and mean, i'm sure it's much more much better now and it came out i should be a hotel manager and my mum was like oh, you're never going to be able to do that you know but actually you could see now looking back it was actually really quite accurate because of course that involves all the areas of hospitality and you know guest service that i've spent my my career working in so yeah there was obviously that computer that falls out. It's obviously more intelligent than we thought. <laughs> yeah. So, so I guess the uh, the moral of the story is listen to your your counselor when they talk about your your career. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. Listen to your teachers, kids. It's, it's well worth it. <laughs> yeah. Stay in school. Um, yeah. Paul, you and I have something in common because when I was growing up, I wanted to play American football, um, and realized I was too short and too slow to be able to. Oh that it's a career but um uh you know just love love the the sport of it um but i want to hear more a little about about pains hill um uh, because mm. you are now and you know certainly you have a great uh history in the industry but it just seems like such a fascinating property can you kind of tell us a little bit about kind of how it came to be and what it is for people who've never heard of it yeah and i wouldn't blame any of your listeners for not hearing it because that's been one of our major issues um since i arrived three years ago it's been really sort of trying to push out the story of Paints Hill a lot more to the public. Um, so Paints Hill was an 18th century landscape garden. Um, there was a chap called Charles Hamilton, who was the, who was a, an Irish aristocrat who lived in the UK, studied at, studied at a university over here. Um, he went off on the grand tours of Europe. Now, um, I'm trying to think of the best way of putting this. They were, they were sort of the 18th century version of the university gap year that, you know, they would, it was ways of going up and educating yourself. And in those days it was seen as, you know, you needed to travel around, um, travel around Europe to, to do that. And so he did two grand tours and these were sort of full on experiences. You weren't, you were gone for months, if not years at a time. He came back full of inspiration for the amazing architecture he'd seen across Italy, particularly and Spain and Germany. And he created this, he, a lot of the people who went on these grand tours would come back with, huge amounts of stuff they would you know buy and you know trade and stuff but he he came back with just most of it in his mind really um bought this plot of land in in cobham um, and that's where paints hill is which a village called cobham and so for listeners we're, we're sort of just south of london really and if you were looking on a map you'd pinpoint london as where we are to to, to put into perspective for you guys um so he built this garden 
he was here for 35 years and, and it was one of the very first um what was seen as what was called the english landscape garden um if you if before that everything was very formal so i think of someone like versailles in paris that you 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 know, listeners may may know, um, you know, everything's very formal gardens. This is much more um, natural and you let trees grow and you experiment with new plants. And he was bringing plants over from the States, one of the first people to do that. Um, they they came in sort of what was called mixed boxes from a chap who, who would travel into, well, the, the, the drawings and stories are literally him traveling into what was the Wild West, I guess, and collecting samples of, um, you know, of plants and trees and stuff. And these boxes would turn up and I don't know if you have this in the US, but in, in, in Europe, it's quite popular. You, you'd order boxes of like fruit and veg that would turn up every week as organic stuff or meat, and you don't know what's going to be in it. And then you open it up and that's what you'll have for your dinner that week. And so it was a bit like that. This box would arrive with various plants in from the States and he would plant them and then see what happens. So it wasn't like a catalog saying you're going to get this lovely tree like we might do nowadays. He would get the stuff planted. So Hamilton's here for 35 years. Sadly, he, he ran out of money. Um, a familiar topic in paint sills history um, and and moved and sold the land and moved on um, it was then looked after by a succession of um, you know people who bought the, the estate after that and they had no no um, no reason to do so um, you know they didn't have to keep it as it was um, the second world war um, came about and there was a lot of troops stationed here from particularly a lot of Canadian troops but and after the war, um, the site was sold off piecemeal and just basically fell into complete disrepair. It was completely overgrown. And the buildings, um, which are called follies in the landscape, had become quite damaged. And in the 1970s, there was a real campaign to save Paynes Hill. You know, people recognising that this absolute fine landscape garden, which has been inspirational for gardens across Europe, across the United States as well. Um, Monticello has influences from Paynes Hill. You know, there's that sort of stuff. So... Um, so we, you know, this campaign was formed and the local authority purchased uh, the land um, and then the trust was a completely independent charity was set up to firstly restore the landscape and then open it and, and keep it safe for now and future generations. So that's, that's the quickest of potted history lessons I can give you and your listeners. So, Paul, uh, you mentioned that uh, you, you said you wouldn't be surprised if people weren't familiar with Painsill and curious yeah. as to as to why that is. And you've even been quoted saying that one of the biggest issues that you're facing is that even people locally aren't too familiar with Painsill. Uh, why is that if it's such a uh, such a historic attraction with such a, a, a rich history that you just gave us that really quick synopsis on? And, and then also what uh, what are you able to do to kind of uh, help bring more awareness? Yeah, I guess, Josh, what you summed up there is, is the sort of problem I inherited when I arrived, that, you know, Paints Hill wasn't very well known. It, it, it had gone through some difficult times. I won't, I won't get into too much detail, but it had gone through some difficult times, and, and we were, therefore, had this sort of... I had, so when I was looking at and applying for this job, there was just so many quick wins that you think, yeah, we could do that, we could do that, we could do that, and, you know, stuff I'd done in the past. And, you know, one of the first things we do was just raise awareness of Paints Hill, um, one of the issues um, was that they didn't really have a definitive, what you might call strap line. Um, you know, there was all these different titles that we'd given ourselves over the years, none of which really helped sell Paints Hill. So there's nothing to really put all our efforts on and, and, and you know, get, get behind. Um, and they'd use phrases like the most tranquil 18th century landscape in Europe. Well, if you, A, Tranquil might put a lot of families off because I mean I've got a nine-year-old son, eight and a half-year-old son, and you know I wouldn't fancy going somewhere that was described as tranquil because I know he is not going to be tranquil while we're going around this site. Um, you know, so there was that was putting people off or landscape garden. What does that mean? You know, ooh, that sounds a bit you know, but you've got to be into horticulture. So there was all sorts of titles like that. One of them was the Hamilton landscapes, and you're like, well, no one's heard of Hamilton. If you know, unless you're a real landscape garden historian, it's not going to mean anything to you. So you know, one old one uh, person recently in the state told me that for years he'd driven past and thought it was an old people's home because he just didn't get the. That's what it was. You know, there's this garden behind here. It just looked like it was something that was a, you know, a, a place to go and rest in your later years. Um, so we we employed the services of an amazing uh, consultant called Scott, who uh, works for a company called Cambridge Group, um, and he did this brilliant branding exercise to come up with our, our strap line of where the walk is a work of art, and that just touched it brilliantly so we've been able to use that and on marketing we've been able to use that to really push paint hill out there and and, and start to generate um 
you know, more visitors, more obviously more visitors mean more income, obviously, obviously sometimes more costs. But you know, that's where we are. I think others also the fact that the gardens have been lost for so many years and really didn't start restoration until the early 1980s means that for a lot of people of sort of you know 40 year old my age plus uh, don't have it in their heritage that they used to come and visit when they were kids because it wasn't here uh, or it was here but it was in such a state you wouldn't have come and for many years when the, this state was first able to open it was only open one or two days a week and it was very limited numbers and there was not really any publicity there was no events was no the tea room for a long time you know got to get those crucial things right haven't you you know people need toilets and they need a cup of tea or a cup of coffee so um yeah so so that's where we are so we're really in a position of now trying to really go let's push the get ourselves out there um during the the the, the awful periods we've had in the pandemic we've been fortunate that because we're an outdoor attraction we've been able to be open for quite a long time we've only closed for nine weeks um uh, we were able to, uh, we were one of the first places in the country as an attraction to reopen after the first lockdown in early 2020. And we've been able to stay open ever since because thankfully the, the government saw that the benefits of gardens were, you know, there for people to exercise and for get out and, they, and, and if they were ticketed, they could control numbers and social distance. So actually they allowed them to stay open. So brilliantly in the two, we've had three main lockdowns in the UK and the second and third ones we were, actually listed as places that could stay open which was which was great so so we're going in the right direction in so many ways um you know a couple of years ago we were attracting seventy-five thousand visitors a year we're now over two hundred thousand a year so we've, we've gone i mean i know those numbers are minuscule for your listeners who run major theme parks but for a small sort of landscape garden in in, in surrey in england that's that's quite a big leap of, of numbers well, yeah, just the, the leap from uh, 75,000 to 200,000, that's a big leap. So operationally, you know, I'm sure you've got to make changes to, to take care of that. Um, I'd like to go back to what you said, because we before we started recording, we were talking about the follies. And that was fascinating yeah. how you kind of described those. So um, for our listeners, especially here in America, can you tell us a little bit more about the follies? Yeah, of course I can. Um so it's a, a you know a folly you you find them in a lot in um, stately homes around Europe and particularly in the UK and they're buildings that you may and you probably in America as well you know you stumble across them when you're out in the, the the wider parts of the estate and for no apparent reason there'll suddenly be something like a tower or a temple or a you know and and they were very very popular part of that 18th century and for Hamilton it was all about the the architecture it's seen in Europe so um, painter was what they call a circular walk so you start at one point. You circle around, you end up back at point A. Perfect for, you know, perfect for a walk or, or a run. You know, Josh, you should come do one of your runs around Painsville. It's perfect for it because you can do a, you can do your five k in just one circuit. It's perfect. Um, I'm on my way. Yeah, cool. Um, we'll do it together. Um, so it's um, yeah. So the follies are around there. So they are all sorts of different buildings. So we have uh, in no particular order a ruined abbey which was built as a ruin. So. Hamilton built that as a, and, and the way, sorry, I should say, the way to fix this is they often feel like stage sets. So they weren't necessarily built to last, which is another part of our problem with why they're not in a great state. So he would build these sort of stage sets almost so that as people toured his grounds, they would see these sort of amazing structures. And the ruined abbey was built as a ruin. So guests may think this abbey has been here since, you know, Henry VIII's time of the Reformation, but actually, It'd been built two weeks ago you know it was that so we have that we have a turkish tent that was based on you know the tents that hamilton seen as part of the ottoman empire we have a palladium bridge chinese bridge um, a grotto uh, is the most amazing of our structures actually and it, it is literally it's complete and utterly man-made but most people go in and think it has to be natural because the job that has been done firstly in building in the first place and then the the restoration work that was done by, by Clifton Conservation, just such good standard that you think you are in a, you know, a natural um, grotto or a cave, um, to use another word. So, you know, they he'd, um, Hamilton seen lots of them in Italy, uh, even natural ones on the Amalfi Coast or, you know, ones in Renaissance Gardens. So, you know, as you walk around, you've got this sort of immersive experience and the grotto is a particularly immersive experience because you, you go in for a very narrow um, a very narrow tunnel which is meant to generate sort of two emotions fear but also a sort of I want to know what's coming next um, and it's a bit um, you know uh, you know like like I don't know going on a really scary roller coaster you sort of you want to go on it because you want to know what it's going to be like but at the same time you're terrified because you're thinking I don't know if I'm going to like this and as you're strapped in and you're clicking your way up the hill thinking this is a really bad idea but you know, so you're going through the tunnel of the grotto in the 18th century thinking 
what's going to be in here. And he had the most amazing um, you know, uses of technology in the 18th century. He had a, a water feature which would be pumped by one of his attendants when they, there was a sort of, a, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to describe this, and it's not probably coming across very well on a podcast. Most people are listening who are driving to work. But there's a, there's a gap in the grotto that this assistant could have seen through and seen guests coming. He starts mentally pumping away. He then leaves scene, you know, exit stage left, as it were. And as the guests come through, this water is merrily flowing down through the grotto, making it feel like a totally natural thing. So you've gone through this tunnel here in water thinking, gosh, where am I going? In you go to the main chamber, which is just beautiful. And then there's water trickling down. Or little do you know, two minutes ago, there was a chap there pumping away. We have a mechanical pump to do it now for visitors. So I don't have to send one of the team out to do any pumping every time visitors are coming around, thankfully. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so so that's a sorry, that's a quite a long answer to your question about about follies, but you know they they make the park and make what makes Paintsville, I think, a very special place. And you know, for 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 Hamilton, they were what he was drawing visitors in to see what he created. Well, we appreciate the long answer of that and, we and do. the additional <laughs> detail on that. And the the way that my gears are are turning here uh, from the way that you describe that, Paul, is when you look at you know, the, the greater attractions industry globally, you know, you, you have tourism focused, you know, man-made attractions and theme parks, and then there's the cultural and heritage side of that. And I know that there's even some sensitivity on the not-for-profit or the heritage side of even calling it an attraction or being mm -hmm. you know, very tourist driven because it wants to be so focused on the, on the history and the heritage. Uh, but the way that you describe that, and I hope I'm not offending anybody by saying this, but this sounds like a theme park in a way that there are man-made structures based off of Hamilton's memory of his, his experiences and his, and his adventures that he's now recreating for the enjoyment and immersive entertainment of whether it's tourists or locals. So how do you define what Paines Hill really is? That it is a historic heritage attraction but it has many of those elements of what you would see if you visit a theme park. It's a fascinating way of looking at it. I won't call it a theme park because in case this gets heard by my trustees, I don't think they'll be too happy. But because right. that's <laughs> what we have to try and avoid it, you know, and that's one of the fears. I don't know if you have this much in the US, but certainly in this country, if um, heritage sites start to do some stuff, they do tend to, so they, this phase that's used in this country all the time, which drives me mad in some ways. It's, Disneyfication, and I don't know if you hear that in the US, but you know that whole well, they've, uh, they've Disneyfied it because they've done X, Y, or Z. In many cases, it's actually they've just done something to even make it more exciting or more interesting, or actually get an audience in. And you know, if you stay too stagnant and you don't develop or make it interesting for visitors, then no one's going to come. And you know, we're an independent charity; we rely on. Uh, income we bring in through our visitor activities to survive. Without that, Paintsville won't be here, and there won't be a 18th century landscape garden for visitors to come and see. I love the way that you described that there, Josh, as being, you know, Hamilton's, you know, it was, and I guess I've never really thought of it that way, but he was generating a site, man-made, for people to come, well, for his own, um, you know, ego, whatever, but also people we know came in to see it and they would uh, tip the gardeners um, to give them a tour around. And that tip, I understand, through various bits of research people have done was part of their wages. So, you know, it was a it clearly was a visitor attraction in some ways because Hamilton was, was doing that. But I think, um, you know, we are a cultural heritage destination. We are, um, and I think I touched on this in the bit we did for your 200th uh, episode, um, you know, was, the, um, was the, 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 the fact that what we've been able to, what we are is there for people, for well-being, for getting in touch with nature. Um, you know, we, we know people have found, particularly during the pandemic, this is a place that they can come and, escape reality and escape the horrors of what's going on you know you, you, every time even now still you but you know here we are recording this in you know mid to early uh, mid to mid uh, mid august and still the news is full of horrors every day and certainly it's in the uk of you know what's going on next and which country we're not going to be able to visit next and i think people are actually enjoying coming here you know for their well-being for, for getting out in the open for, for doing that so you know there's so many you know things that yeah we can do and 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 but I as I said earlier on I'm always looking at you know what the the wider attractions industry is doing because I think you can just get inspiration from that in terms of you know we've all got to deliver a great guest service haven't we that's what we're all there for at the end of the day you know whatever attraction you are you need visitors to go home a 
hopefully, you know, saying they've had a lovely time, putting something on social media and saying they've had a lovely time and telling their friends because word of the mouth is so, so important, isn't it? You know, particularly for us as a small attraction, I need people to come out here and say, you must go and visit Paints Hill. It's absolutely amazing. I didn't know it was there, for example. And that's certainly happened in the, in the last 12 months. So I wouldn't describe it as a theme park, but I think it's fair to say that some of the stuff Hamilton was doing was probably a, a forerunner for that, shall we say. You know, definitely he, was, he wasn't Walt Disney but he was you know getting <laughs> people to enjoy well and I hate to draw too many comparisons to theme parks but we talk about escapism as well you know theme parks yeah. family entertainment centers you know cultural attractions you know a lot of it is about escape and I love the way you talk about um, you know, pain cell being a place where people can go and kind of relax and retouch with nature and, and, you know, have a nice walk and get some fresh air. And it's actually good for your health. Um, I'm curious though, you know, as you talk about this walk being a work of art, which I love that phrase, um, how that compares to what we hear and talk about so much when it talk when it comes to technology, right? And everybody wants the latest and greatest technology and they're wanting their experiences and their attractions to reflect that as well this is a very different approach, right? Hmm. You know, there, there isn't, um, you know, a, a, a ton of technology coming at you. You're there to slow down and real, relax. So how has that been um, maybe part of your differential equation that this isn't, you know, the hustle and bustle, but it's a little slower. So how have you yeah. kind of managed that, that difference? I think you're, you've, you've summed that well. I think, you know, we, we aren't overly... Techni technical, if that's the right word. You know, we haven't got screens left, right, and centre. And funny enough, I was talking to someone this morning um, about our education programme and the fact that, you know, we were sold out in the spring and summer term for schools uh, and our summer camps at the moment are running because it's, we're in the middle of the school summer holidays in the UK. Um, and, you know, we'll have 10, 20 children come a day who go out of our education team and are out in the landscape for a whole day. There's not a screen in sight. You know, they haven't got an iPad, they haven't got an iPad, they might have them on, but they're not using them. You know, they are getting used to nature, they're den building, they're climbing trees, they're doing stuff that we probably did as kids before, you know, everyone had a phone in their pocket, certainly did, you know. So so that's very important to us. I mean, we've introduced some areas of, of technology, such as, you know, that we do have an audio tour now that you can listen to on your iPhone. So actually, as you go around, you can listen to a number of our team talking about different areas of Paints Hill. But it is, you're right, it's about slowing down and, and then, i mean you know there is there's a time and place for everything isn't it and this is about you know spending time with the family getting some exercise um and connecting with nature learning a bit about heritage and history and learning about the gardens or it might be you're one of our members you just come to walk the dog here every day you know that but it, you want to do that in a really nice safe environment because you know that in pain so everyone's had to come for a turnstile so you know there's not going to be people you might sometimes find in a park you know, that's open access, who've just been, you know, whatever. Um, so I, you know, I think that's that's the crucial thing that we offer. And, and you know, to say I, I find it fascinating when people are talking on your, your, your you know, your podcasts like your own great show that, you know, of how they've generated rides and different uh, experience stuff. We had a guy a few weeks ago talking about how it generates different experience stuff and what they were doing there. You know, brilliant stuff. And I'm always thinking, well, what can we do there? But, you know, I'm not going to suddenly build a log flume going down one of the hills into the lake because that just wouldn't be right. You know, and everything we try to do here is to go back to within that 35 year window that Hamilton was here. So my landscape team won't plant a tree that wouldn't have been available in the 18th century. You know, so, you know, and some of the trees that are, you know, I'll walk around the grounds and maybe go for a run after our interview. And, you know, there's stuff out there now that's been growing since Hamilton's time. We had the largest cedar tree in Europe. Uh, and that was planted by Hamilton. And there's living, growing, you know, testament to the work of Charles Hamilton all those years ago. How can you uh, determine what's, you know, what what's next as far as what is going to continue to keep visitors engaged, keep them coming back? When you say, you know, of course, you say you're, you're not going to build it, a log flume going into the lake. So maybe it's not about, you know, embracing new attraction types or even, you know, new technology, but being able to preserve a lot of the, uh, I would say the heritage and the, the charm of what people are coming for but are able to do it. So there isn't necessarily just a been there, done that, check that off the list, but there's that you know reason to continually come back. Yeah, I think, you know, because it's somewhere to come and walk and to exercise, naturally there will be that returning factor. 
you know, so, you know, I can think of places that I would go to and I visit once and I think, well, I don't need to go there until they do something different or build a new ride or whatever else. But here, you know, you are, it's a, by nature, there's, well, I have guests who come virtually every day and they will walk a couple of the runs around, people walk around the lake and they'll sit up coffee and I'm on first name terms with guests. I've never been on first name terms with guests before in my, in my career because I'm seeing these people every day and they'll, shout across the park hi Paul and you know I'll shout back hi Dave whatever you know so actually it's a really nice environment what we need to do is keep bringing in ways of you know generating new experiences of people and we've particularly done that this year with a number of events so within our walled garden we've done comedy and theatre this year which is outside of the normal hours so encouraging people to come in outside of hours enjoy comedy enjoy theatre what was great about that is because we started these and we were still in restrictions um comedians were playing for the first time in so long that they were actually able to have an audience and there they were in a gorgeous wall garden yeah so you know it felt like a brilliant thing we've done music nights so we've done we've expanded our events program uh, particularly out of hours so you're doing stuff um you know out of hours. we've done a number of installations in the last couple of years around um working for a, a local company which is always a big tick for me if you're working with someone local that you can you're helping the local community and businesses um, and they build like large um models if you like of and um, we've had dragons we've had uh, jungle animals and uh, winter animals and they and we'll position them around the park and now this sounds a very basic experience but people actually loved going out around the landscape and ticking off when they found the polar bear or the penguins now none of these were animatronic none of these were doing anything really funky they were just there but i think it was just because it's take it's almost going back to a sort of more humble experience if you like that you know you're still just walking there to go find stuff we're planning to do dinosaurs at christmas this year again they won't be moving and roaring and doing anything exciting in that sense but people will still touch wood and i hope come come to see them so it seems like that it's it's not detracting from the fact that this is a heritage site this is a really it's a grade one listed garden which is a system we have in the uk for protection so if something's really valued or important it would be get grade one or two status um same with buildings um uh, and and doing things that are non in, you know non-interventional so what it means with that is you're not we're not building something new and what we did build it was a children's play area about a year and so ago so we built that, but we built that out of the historic area. So it's a site, it's near the cafe conveniently. So parents can grab a, a, a latte or something. Kids can play in a player. But that was a natural player, which was all built from wood from the estate. So again, it didn't feel like we'd stuck a load of plastic in the park. It just fits and looks natural. So yeah, that what next question is when I ask regularly, ask myself and ask the team, because we've got to keep doing stuff. And, you know, this year, as I said earlier, we've introduced an audio tour. Next little thing we we'll do it. You know, so it's little things like that. Um, you know, for us, it's about, I mean, for us, it's about staying financially sustainable so the, the, the park can survive um, because it's always going to be a struggle. Um, you know, we're not going to be investing in huge new roller coasters because that's just not us and that's just not how we'll be. But again, there is a place for that. And, you know, I, I love that industry as well. So it's, you know, I love going to visit theme parks. I love, you know, terrifying myself on roller coasters. But um, yeah, not been doing that enough recently, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, speaking of that, do you have a, a favorite roller coaster or attraction outside of Paynes Hill? Oh gosh, that's a great question, isn't it? I went to, I took my son to Disneyland Paris um, last, uh, would have been 2019. Gosh, it's flown by. And there was some great rides there. I'm absolutely terrified by the Tower of Terror. Um, I've never been so scared in all my life, I don't think, bouncing up and down that. Um, but yeah, but then yeah, I, went, I don't know if you guys, I don't think this is in the US yet, but the Ratatouille ride that I think they're building in Epcot mm. um, was in the uh, the studios bit, because obviously you're in Paris. That was just the most amazing, inter immersive experience I'd ever encountered. I just, we went out about three or four times, I was just like, this is just wow. It just, you know, you felt like it was in the film. I just thought it was just brilliant. And I know, I'm sure they are building in the US, so there's something for you guys to, to, to check out when it's over there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Paul, one thing we're also curious about, too, is that you have an honorary doctorate for heritage and tourism. Would love yeah. it if you can share a little bit more about how, how that came to be and what that means for you. Well, uh, gosh, it was the most amazing honor. As, a, as not an overly academic person, it was, it was a real, um, a massive shock. Um, a complete honor and I you know it's not something you would you use you know it doesn't 
technically I could call myself Dr. Paul, but that would just be ridiculous because I haven't studied for years to have that, that honour, so that would be wrong. Um, it was, um, I'd done quite a lot of work with Stanley University when I was at the Mary Rose. We, we worked really closely with them, uh, particularly around developing their students. So we did lots on the employability side. So we would take it, you know, we had a, an intern come in every year that was paid for by the university. We would give them as much, as much experience and they would very much be part of the management team for a year. So we'd rely on them, we'd get them doing stuff and they left with, you know, this experience that they've all gone on to really good jobs and I'm all, you know, really proud of them. But we also, I went over to the university quite a lot, did some lectures. We also did, gave a number of projects to, to students as well in a number of areas. So I'd worked a lot with the uni and then suddenly one morning the post came and there was this letter with this just amazing, you know, would you be willing to accept this honour? You know, I couldn't reply quick enough. Yes, of course I will. Um, you know, it was just, yeah, it was just amazing. Um, and it was just to be recognised for your work was just, for me, it was just tremendous. I know I didn't study for it, but I was proud because it had been awarded for just what I'd done in the industry. So, yeah, I was. it was a great honour and I, you know, but yeah, fabulous. But yeah, something sits on CV quite nicely and, you know, we can talk about it now. But but yeah, no, and I loved, I must have loved working with the students from the uni because it was really great. They were all tourism students. I was constantly, you know, and I think because of my experience of doing a similar degree and then going into my career, I was able to sort of, once I was a careers advisor, but able to sort of chat to them about what they needed to do or ways of thinking and, and just, you know, never always taking that next opportunity, trying never to say no to stuff, you know, try and be as, you know, great, make sure you're noticed, do the customer experiencing and, and, you know, get stuck into anything that comes up. And, you know, our, our work is about that, isn't it? You know, I think back to one of my first jobs in business services, my first job every morning was cleaning the public toilets um, because we didn't have a cleaning team. Um, Another job I had uh, in my English church days, we had really poor drainage because it was a really historic site. I regularly had to pull up the drains and rod them before major events because they block. And that's just, you know, you've got to do it, haven't you? Because you've got 200 people turning up for an event in half an hour and they can't have block loose. So, you know, it's, um, it's, I, I, and I love that about our industry that it is turning your hand to so many different things and, you know, particularly at smaller sites. And I hope many of your listeners are reticent with this that it is about, you know, doing everything and you know then turning around and smiling at the you know the last customer of the day and saying thank you for coming hope to see you again because you know we're giving people we're giving people great memories you hope aren't we and um yeah so that's what we do yeah paul there's something special about all that work that goes into creating the experience whether it's cleaning the toilets or you know cleaning out the drains or whatever it is and then poof the gates are open and it's like this is the the perfect you know example of the experience that we want people to to show. They don't need to know what was going on behind the scenes, and then you know you kind of do it all the next day. So I think that's something that Josh and I have talked about. It's the bug that we get uh, for creating that kind of experience. So it's really really interesting to hear that that's kind of your path as well. Yeah, it's great when you you know you people don't want to see that, but actually they always do because I can remember in my English days at Kenwood we did a, a sort of behind the scenes tour where people basically came and visited the offices and they, they they would sell out every time and my colleague jovially called it where the magic happens and it was just like um you know they can't they can't the back staircase and say oh, this is the office this is where our head of operations is people were fascinated by this and i think you know i was i don't know if you've watched it on disney plus but the imagineering series was just awesome yeah. and, how, and i've watched i must have watched it four times now <laughs> because it was just so fascinating watching how they created the rise, but also it talked a lot about the visitor experience. And I just thought that was just such a, a fascinating behind the scenes glimpse at, at what's gone on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Imagineering story is awesome. And then my wife and I recently started watching, um, I think it's gonna, yeah, Behind the Attraction. So Kim, similar type of style, uh, but then they, okay. they focused on one specific attraction. You were talking about Disneyland Paris and, you know, Tower of Terror there. We were just watching how that was made last night. So Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. People, people like to see that yeah. behind the scenes glimpse on what's going on. And like Matt mentioned that, you know, we've talked about that, you know, a, a number of times of how much work goes into making it look like it all just came to be. Now, yeah. when you talk about kind of those, I would say those, those dirtier jobs of, you know, something, uh, you know, the, the custodial, you know, elements of it, the, the cleanliness, sanitation, have you found that people want to see more of that front and center, particularly in the last year, year and a half, or after you, you opened after your, uh, I think you said the nine weeks of lockdown, do people want to see more of that happening in front of them? 
Yeah, I think I think they they wanted to to see that a lot. Um, I, I'll quote something now: Bert, a chap called Bernard Donahue, who you may have come across, who is the chief executive of Albert. He used this phrase: "Sanitize your site, not the experience." And I thought that was just so brilliant. About people still want to come and have the same experience they had before, but want to know they're going to be safe. Um, and that certainly comes out of all the business sentiment research that's gone on, particularly in the UK. You know, that people want to know how safe they are. And I. My before we reopened, my uh, marketing uh, head of marketing, Chrissy, did this amazing video. It's only filmed on a, uh, the basics filmed on her iPhone, which she then cut in with some footage. And it basically just told people what to expect when we reopened. So it showed people how we were going to queue up a one way system, never done before, how the tea room was now had a one way system to a cafe, gravity, then you had to go outside, um, where the toilets were, just really was. And it was so, so, so well received. You would not believe how many people commented, wrote to us, thanked us, put stuff on social media, because actually seeing that film before they came made them feel safe and made them think, actually, I'm going to a safe environment and I'm going to have a great experience because I know I'm going to be safe. And people were nervous and people are still nervous. You know, I'm sure they are in the US. They certainly are in the UK. In, in theory, we have no restrictions now here, but we still do because, you know, people are nervous. Um, so, yeah, so um, I think you're right. People wanted to see and know that they're going to be safe and want to see hand sanitizers and wanted to see people in masks and you know we in the uk now we've got a position where there's no legal requirement to wear a mask but we're still asking people to do it in inside because actually that's not making our visitors feel a bit safer certainly making our staff feel safer and you know we've got to look after our visitors but we also have to look after our staff haven't we they're the most important asset we have and you know they need to feel safe because they're there every day churning out brilliant excellent customer service so they need to feel safe and happy in what they're doing as well in any any profession not just our profession absolutely yeah yeah um paul you know we would be remiss if we didn't mention skip the queue uh the podcast from <laughs> your side of the pond because that's yeah. how i originally heard of you um and then we've had kelly molson on our podcast and we've both been on hers um a great podcast for the visitor experience industry uh but you've been on there and you've actually turned the tables and and been the podcast host uh with kelly recently which i thought was a fascinating ap- episode so can you give us some insight of what it was like to turn the tables and, and be the host in that experience? It's funny because I didn't really see it initially as turning the tables as such. It was just um, Kelly was chatting on LinkedIn, you know, what a great resource that is, about um, how she was uh, writing a blog, I think, on the, the problems of, or not the problems, uh, you know, the, the, the joys and the challenges of doing a podcast. And I half jokingly said, oh, I should, we should do this and skip the queue and I'll interview you. And, Fortunately, she would say, don't be stupid. That's a really crap idea, you know. Um, but she didn't. She was like, oh, it'd be brilliant. Let's do that. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and then suddenly thought, oh, blimey, I'm going to be hosting a podcast. And I never thought I'd be doing that. So, yeah, so McKelly's such great fun. And, and, you know, the episode you guys did before was brilliant. And I loved when you both came on Scoop the Queue with Kelly as well. So, you know, she's such a such a great, lovely person. It's wonderful. And so we had just a great fun of that. And I particularly found that subject fascinating because... I think it's become a bit like everyone suddenly wants to do a podcast uh, and you guys will know this because you deliver one of the best that people are, you know, there's a lot of hard work involved and it's not just recording someone chatting and then sticking it on, you know, Spotify or something. It's, it needs editing, it needs subtitling or it needs, you know, equipment and everything else. So that's why I thought it was brilliant because it was a, I hope people found it really interesting that this isn't an easy thing to go and do. And, you know, if they were being pushed by their, you know, senior teams come we must go and do a podcast well actually there's a lot involved in this and you know and and different levels and and, you know the work that uh, that Kelly had done to get sorted out and um, yeah she's been fab against such brilliant guests on as well so yeah so it's a pleasure to do it it was great fun and we had a we had a we had great great fun doing it and I think it sounded all right as well so yeah it's not uh... yeah yeah, we really enjoyed uh, listening to to that episode, to that interview with Kelly. So, uh, so do you have any questions for us? Do you want to do any any interview with us? For- <laughs> well, yeah, right. So, guys, well, you know, tell, what's your favorite rides? What's your favorite rides? You you are the attraction pro. So, what's your your favorite rides to do? Matt, you can go first on that. I, Mine, I know we both know each other's answers. I think we do. Yeah, <laughs> mine is uh, Fury three two five, which is a roller coaster at Carowinds uh, here in North Carolina. It's three hundred and twenty five feet tall, like ninety five miles an hour, uh, smooth and fast, and lots of you know out of your seat airtime. And um, I was just on a coaster trip, and you know Josh and I talked a lot about it. But I rode it fourteen times that day, 
And that was just an amazing experience. But I have to say, as I'm getting a little older, you know, I'm looking for the smoother rides, but I'm also looking for those opportunities to reconnect with nature. And, you know, it's just sometimes a walk in the, in the, uh, in the forest can be really uh, rejuvenating. So um, whenever I get over to Europe and to, to England, I have to visit Payne's Hill. Yeah, I look forward to giving you a tour around. It'd be fabulous. So, yeah. It would be, yeah. And, uh, and mine is Millennium Forest, which isn't 325 feet. It's, it's only 310 feet. And when I was at Cedar Point a couple of weeks ago, I didn't ride it 14 times, but I did ride it three times. So <laughs> that, uh, that's, that's been my favorite for, I guess, about 20 years now. That was also uh, my, my first job in the industry was a ride operator for two summers at Millennium Forest at Cedar Point in Ohio. So I love why you wouldn't know the dimensions of it and just reeled them off. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I can keep going. But, you know. right. <laughs> pretty, pretty pros, yeah. yeah. Paul, this has been uh, such an interesting conversation. We really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to chat with you. Uh, as we wind this down, any uh, final message for, uh, for our audience or words of wisdom? Gosh, I don't have words of wisdom. I mean, if anyone's you know up and coming in the industry, I think as we've said earlier, it's that throw your hands to everything, take on everything, you know, listen to listen, listen to great stuff like you know you guys talking on your podcast. So there's the the, the Disney ones, um, you know, that are really really great that you can listen to, you know, that um, Dan's one and stuff. So so just learn, keep learning, keep trying, keep doing everything. Um, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, you can find me on LinkedIn or or on Twitter, which is you know p griffiths underscore php. Um, just give me a shout. I'd love to start a conversation. You know, if anyone wants to continue any stuff we've talked about or pick up on that, great. You know, love chatting to people. Absolutely. And if people want to know more about Pains Hill, where would they go? Yeah, that's a very good point. I should have been pushing that more, shouldn't I? It's uh, the best place to start is our brand new website, which we, we rebuilt this year, actually, which has been a really great, fun thing to do. Um, and that's www.painshill.co.uk. Excellent. Awesome. Uh, we'll put all that uh, in the show notes for, uh, for our audience to be able to find it. So Paul, thank you again uh, so much for joining us here on the podcast. We really appreciate your time today. And for everyone out there who is watching and listening, just remember, we are all attraction pros. Thanks for listening to the attraction pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.